Atlanta Athletic Club, A History, written by Charles Eliot in 1973. Chapter 3. No one knows exactly where the first golf course was built, or for that matter, where the game started. The ancient Romans were said to have a game they called Paganica, but it smacked more of entertainment than competition. They used a small leather ball stuffed with feathers and a stick with a flattened knob on one end. There was no definite hole or goal. People simply amused themselves when they had to make a cross-country journey afoot by knocking the ball as far and as straight ahead as possible toward their destination. Apparently, the idea spread with the Roman Empire through Europe and somewhere along the line became confined to a specified area with a prescribed layout of holes. The Dutch must have had a big hand in the development because much of the language of today's golfer stems from the Netherlands. The name of the game is thought to be from the Dutch word kalf, which means club. To hit his ball, the Dutchman placed it on a toy tee, and the hole itself was a put. Golf was developed in the European countries long before it came to America. The reason was that our pioneer settlers in this country were farmers, craftsmen, and tradesmen who had come here to find freedom and who brought with them a strong aversion toward those who had depressed them and for what they termed frivolities of the old country's landed nobility. Golf was a game of the idle affluent, and the new Americans were so occupied with mere existence, they had no time for such nonsense. With more wealthy Europeans coming to the New World, it was ordained that some eventually would bring the game over with them. It wasn't until the late 1700s, however, that golf was played at all, and then only in a few places in both the U.S. and Canada, and on an indifferent basis. There is a record of a golf club in Savannah, Georgia in 1800, but it seems to have disbanded at the start of the War of 1812 and was never reorganized. The first permanent golf club did not make its appearance in America until 1888, ten years before the Atlanta Athletic Club was born. It was named after Scotland's famous St. Andrew's course and established at Yonkers, New York. It was only a six-hole course with a tent for a clubhouse. The site was a 30-acre pasture around which the pioneer golfers were allowed to knock their balls with no green fee or property rental to pay. After four years, the Yonkers clubbers decided to move their course, and they did it in one day by changing the location of the tent and the layout of six holes to an apple orchard. Their second move was into an old farmhouse at Gray Oaks. They arranged this into a clubhouse and built a nine-hole course in just two days. From this humble beginning, the sport of golf spread rapidly across America. AAC was one of the first clubs in the southern states to consider adding golf to its other athletic activities. More than a dozen years after the beginning of the Yonkers Club, the directors of AAC began to look around for the proper terrain and location on which they might build, and which would be reasonably accessible to its members. The club was, by then, established in its Auburn Avenue home, and was only a few years into its existence. A site that appealed to the directors was a low, rolling series of hills around Eastlake that sprawled out into the wilds of DeKalb County, far beyond the end of the streetcar line, and included part of the old Collier estate. Eastlake itself, a sparkling stretch of water surrounded by forest land, was the site of an amusement park run by Tom Poole. It was privately owned, and its chief attractions were a swimming beach, picnic tables, hot dog, popcorn, and peanut stands, and a penny arcade, where for the sum of one cent, people could peep at such scenes as Pike's Peak, the 1889 World's Fair in faraway Paris, 
the Eiffel Tower, which had opened that same year, and bathing beauties and revealing bloomers. There was also a real steamboat that huffed and puffed up and down the narrow confines of the lake to give sightseers a thrilling ride. Early in 1904, the Georgia Railway and Power Company, parent organization of the Georgia Power Company, extended the electric streetcar line from downtown Atlanta onto East Lake. This extension of the car line was influenced by E.P. Black and Son and George and Forrest Adair, who had purchased a sizable chunk of the Collier estate. At that time, it was owned by Henry M. Atkinson, one of the founders of AAC. And while he never served in an official capacity, he was dedicated to the success of the club. With Atkinson's passing in 1939, O.B. Keeler told the story in his Atlanta Journal column. With the passing of Henry Morrell Atkinson, Harry Atkinson, to so many people who loved and cherished his friendship, the Atlanta Athletic Club lost one of its singularly distinguished charter members. It was back in August of 1898 that Harry Atkinson was one of 67 young men who applied for a charter for the Atlanta Athletic Club, and Harry Atkinson was a member for the rest of his long and useful life. It was at the dawn of the present century that the late George Adair went to Mr. Atkinson, who owned the property now occupied by the clubhouse and number one course at Eastlake, with the suggestion that perhaps a country club might be established with facilities for the then-new and underdeveloped game of golf, if the property might be obtained within the means of the new athletic club. Mr. Atkinson's reply was brief, explicit, and to the point. You may have it at your own figure, he told Mr. Adair, and you may put me down for a cash subscription toward the building of the clubhouse. Thus began the Eastlake Country Club, on a site which Mr. Atkinson once confessed had always appealed to him as an ideal terrain and location. More than that, this young man had a dream of empire. In golf, a young man from the East, who had played golf in its earliest days in this country, who was a dear friend of Charles Blair MacDonald, first of the American amateur champions. I could at times even visualize another St. Andrews, Mr. Atkinson said many years after. But I never saw, even in the rosiest moments of the vision, an Alexis Sterling, a Bobby Jones, who were to carry Eastlake to the top of the world as a home of golf, a place in the sun shared only with St. Andrews. The dream was there, in Harry Atkinson's mind and heart, and the world figures of that dream evolved with all the inevitability of a natural phenomenon. Eastlake, the Atlanta Athletic Club. As the dream materialized and the harder facts of life in the desperate era of the Depression came on, Harry Atkinson, the club member and the man of practical affairs, again stood forth as a stalwart in support, rallying the local members and friends of the club to meet the emergency and to carry on to a comfortable security commensurate with its imposing station. A great man, a great club member, a great sportsman. Harry Atkinson's memory is enshrined in the grateful and loving memory of the members, present and to come, of the club he loved so well and aided so vitally in its founding and its preservation for the generations yet to come. George Adair, who was AAC vice president under Arnold Broyles and who had been tagged as the next president, a position that he was to hold for six terms, was one of the key men who arranged for the East Lake property to be turned over to AAC in July of 1904. There is no record of when the amusement park went out of business or whether all of the facilities were used as a part of the country club by AAC members before the new clubhouse and golf course were completed. 
Apparently, some of the first athletic benefits enjoyed by the members were the swimming and boating at East Lake. The first bit of construction was the addition of four tennis courts, as the country club set up for what at the time was the most popular game among its members. Club records show that one of the first orders of business was the establishment of communication with the outside world by the addition of a telephone duplex line in November of 1905 at the rate of $3 per month. Then on March 6, 1906, AAC signed a contract with architect Edward E. Doherty and builders P.J. Wesley and Sons to construct a combination boat and bathhouse as an enlargement of the facilities already located on the lake. This contract for the interim club building specified that the new addition must be completed and turned over to AAC before July 1st, possibly to be ready for the July 4th celebration that year. No dates are recorded to show when the original golf course was laid out and started. The club employed Tom Bindelow, one of the well-known golf architects of that day, to do the job. The course he designed remained in play for some half a dozen years, and it was extraordinary, according to Robert T. Bobby Jones Jr., in that it gave a golfer the opportunity to use every wood and every iron in his bag. Jones points out that the old course was, quote, a sort of strange layout as golf courses go, because it had only two three-par holes, the first and the third. The rest were short par fours and fives. From other standpoints, it was also an interesting course. We even had names for some of the holes. A couple I recall were the 16th that we knew as the circus ring because of its appearance. And the 14th where you had to play a shot around or over the spectacle bunker. A double trap which was, of course, shaped like a pair of spectacles or eyeglasses. After its original construction, the Eastlake Golf Course was remodeled twice while owned by the Atlanta Athletic Club. In 1913... Golf architect Donald Ross changed the holes around to approximately as they are today. And in 1959 to 1960, George W. Cobb lengthened and expanded those holes into outstanding championship caliber for the 1963 British American Ryder Cup golf matches. The building of East Lake's initial golf layout went much slower than the two-day construction job by the Yonkers Club. More than two years were needed to hack out the space for fairways, tees, and greens out of the forested hillsides, to grade and shape, and to grow a stand of grass on the reluctant red soil. What heavy machinery there was consisted of scoops, graders, and mowers, all powered by mules. Most of the work to bring the new golf course into existence was done by hand, with axe and saw and pick and shovel. On April 13, 1907, some 15 months before the proposed opening date for the course, the club employed Harry Leslie Walker as architect to draw plans for a clubhouse for the golfers with lockers, showers, and other accommodations. Walker designed the building to fit neatly between the starting tee and number 18 green on the contour of the slope above the original quarters on the lake. When the clubhouse and course were officially opened for use and play on July 4, 1908, only a few of the more than 500 members classified as resident were interested in golf. AAC remained primarily a tennis club with only casual interest in the other athletic activities. It's interesting to note that in that year, Bobby Jones was just six years old. The National Amateur Championship was won by J.D. Travers, and the National Open Champion was Fred McLeod. George Sargent, who was later to serve as pro at Eastlake, won the Open in 1909. 
to provide food for its grand opening and subsequently until it could install its own restaurant accommodations, AAC hired the services of a caterer. On July 1, 1908, AAC signed a contract with the Silverman Catering Company, turning over exclusive cafe privileges without charge at the new country club. This first dining arrangement at Eastlake extended between July 1st and October 1st of that year. Space assigned for serving food and beverages was the grill room, a small dining room, and when necessary or convenient, the porches of the club building, where all edibles as well as coffee, tea, chocolate, and milk were dispensed to the members. In this contract, the club agreed to furnish the kitchen, all necessary pots and pans and other cooking apparatus, tables, linens, crockery, cutlery, and silverware, with no rental involved. The first dining facilities at the Country Club were open seven days a week between 6 o'clock in the morning and 9 at night. Hot breakfast was served from 6 to 9 a.m., hot dinners from 6.30 to 9 p.m., and cold lunches at all hours the cafe was open. Members were not allowed to pay cash to the catering company for their meals or drinks, but could either sign tickets or make the payment in coupons bought at the downtown club. Some of the small number of golfers whose names have come down to us are Frank Meter, Fulton Coville, who gave Bob Jones his first club, both Colonel and Mrs. Robert P. Jones and son Bobby, Richard Hickey, Tom Prescott, the Thomas Paines, Dr. Edgar Ballinger, Clarence Knowles, W.R. Tickener, Alexis Sterling, George Frank and Perry Adair, Dowdle Brown, Carlton Smith, Eston Mansfield, and Fred Patterson. These ranged in age from 6 to 40, and several of the youngsters went on to make the name Eastlake famous throughout the world. When I played golf out there, Fred Patterson related, our foursome consisted of John Smith, Gus Gresham, we called him Fussy Gussie, Lowry Grant, and me. We were called the Atlanta RA, which stood for Ragged Asses. Bob Jones was a young fellow then, just getting started. He could outplay us at golf, but he knew he could never outtalk us. Eastlake was gradually building up as a community. The new car line provided transportation from the heart of Atlanta, and homes were beginning to appear in the vicinity, built by those who wanted to get away from the noise and the bustle of a rapidly growing city. Many who did not live there year-round came out during the summer to escape the heat and enjoy the lake, tennis courts, and golf course. Determined to make their new country club outstanding in every way, and to give it the most possible prestige in the growing world of golfdom, the men who had brought Eastlake so far along in such a short period of time looked around for a top professional to take charge of all activities relative to the game. From this standpoint, the committee found what it considered the perfect man for the job in the person of Alex Smith. Smith, in his mid-thirties, was one of the few men who had the reputation as a complete professional. Not only was he an outstanding shop maker, his vast experience included course construction and maintenance, teaching and the custom manufacturing of golf clubs. Born in Scotland in 1872, he was one of five brothers who migrated to America in the 1890s and who played a big role in the early popularity of golf on this side of the Atlantic. His first job in this country had been as assistant pro at Washington Park in Chicago. When he came to Eastlake, he already had behind him the impressive record as runner-up in the U.S. Opens of 1898 and 1901, winner of the Western Open in 1903, of the Metropolitan Open in 1905, and the winner of both the Western Open and the U.S. Open in 1906. 
He was the first of several great pros to leave their influence and impact on the Eastlake golfers and contribute to the championship quality by which AAC's first country club became known wherever the language of golf was spoken. When Alex Smith went on to greater accomplishments in golf, the Eastlake fathers went overseas, again to Scotland, and imported Jimmy Maiden, who was a noted golfer, but even more devoted to teaching the game. Perhaps Jimmy's biggest contribution to Eastlake was the hiring of his brother Stuart as his assistant. Stuart made an immediate hit with a golfing set and was elected to take his brother's place as pro when Jimmy moved on. Stuart Maiden made the first set of matched clubs that Bobby Jones ever owned. It consisted of a driver, brassy, mid-iron, mashy, niblick, and putter. It was possibly the forerunner of the matched club set the development of which is often credited to Jones and came back in the days when most golfers bought clubs one at a time because of the feel, weight, swing, or whatever appealed to them. Stewart was one of the most colorful of East Lake pros over the years. He was never one of the giants of competitive golf, but a top-flight teacher. His greatest claim to fame was as a model for a young fellow not yet in his teens who followed Stewart around the course, watching his immaculate swing the name of that youngster was Bobby Jones. The friendship between Bob and Stuart Maiden developed into affection that endured throughout all the years of the old pro. Stuart, Bob Jones recalled, was a real funny guy. He had a talent for making very pungent, irreverent, witty remarks, and I remember many times in which he commented on members in one way or another. Of one of them, he said, not wholly seriously, Oh, he's a great player. He only has one fault. He can't hole out soon enough. Once, Stewart had been giving lessons to a club member for quite a while, and someone asked how he was getting along with the guy. Maiden said in his rich Scottish brogue, I can't do a thing for him. After five minutes, he's teaching me. Another member, off his game, went out to take a lesson from the pro and was asked to hit five or six balls, which he did. Then as he started to hit another, Stewart stepped up, grabbed him by the wrist, and held him. He had a grip like iron and looked him straight in the eyes and said, Damn it, Red, do you have to play golf? To another member, he made this suggestion. The best thing for you to do is lay off the game for two weeks, then quit altogether. He was just that way, Bob said. If you didn't have any particular promise, he'd give you lessons all right, but he wouldn't take much interest in you. Like most teaching pros, he had a knack of putting a finger on one flaw that might appear insignificant, but can make a big difference in a man's game. Sometimes just one salty pointer can give a golfer a lot of help. Jones continued, At Oakmont, in the amateur championship, I was having trouble, shearing my tee shots off to the right and catching all the bunkers along the sides of the fairways. I was fighting for pars on every hole. Stewart heard about it and sent a telegram saying, Hit them hard. They'll land somewhere. So I did. I kept being wild, but hitting them so hard that I knocked them over the bunkers into the adjoining fairways, which were a lot easier to play out of than the bunkers. Stuart Maiden left Eastlake, went to New York, and opened an indoor golf school in the Grand Central building, right across from Grand Central Station. In the summer, he had a job instructing golf for a club in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains. When Peachtree Club in Atlanta was opened, he came back to the pro job there, remained there as long as he lived, and was always a great favorite with the members. I used to follow Stuart Maiden all around the course, Bob says, and watch him play, and unconsciously I fashioned my swing after him. 
I never had a formal lesson from him or anyone else, either on or off the practice tee. But occasionally I'd get in trouble, and I'd ask him to watch me hit a few and make some suggestions, which was usually enough. It'd take about five minutes. By doing this, he developed a flawless style and vouched for its closeness to the old pro's swing by a story he told in his book, Down the Fairway. I was playing a practice round prior to the Southern Amateur Championship in Birmingham, and this man, who had not seen Stewart since he left Scotland, was standing by Dad as I was driving off the 10th tee in the distance. When did Stuart Maiden get here, he inquired. Dad told him that Stuart was not there at all. Ah, you can't fool me, said the man. I saw Stuart drive just now from the 10th tee. You think I don't know that old Carnoustie swing? After Stuart Maiden came several pros who were popular with the growing list of golfers and who contributed their own distinctive personalities. The names of those over the intervening years before George Sargent took over the golfing duties at the country club include Frank Ball, Billy Wilson, and Charlie Gray. George Sargent came to Eastlake in 1932. He was one of the early touring professionals in this country and had carved a distinguished career for himself. Possibly the most noted of his victories were the U.S. Open in 1909 and the Canadian Open in 1912. He left the tour for Eastlake to devote himself to teaching and to the affairs of the club, and for more than two decades remained one of the most popular pros the club ever had. George Sargent was born in Epsom Downs, England, and started playing golf early in life. He chose this as his vocation, and when he came to the U.S., he was already established in his field. There was no golf circuit as such in those days, but he played in all of the major tournaments available at that time. As a matter of record, in 1909, he set the all-time low score for the Open, and it held until 1915, when Chick Evans broke it. He also established the Canadian Open record, but that score was bested the very next year. Before he took the Eastlake job, George Sargent was the golf pro at many of the nation's finest clubs at that time. One was Chevy Chase in Washington, D.C., where he gave golf lessons to President Taft. From there, he went to Interlochen in Minnesota, where Bob Jones won the Open in 1930. He came to Eastlake from Scioto in Columbus, Ohio, where, interestingly enough, Jones won the Open in 1926. Sargent remained at Eastlake until his retirement in 1947, when he turned the reins over to Harold, his son and assistant at the club. Harold was never a seriously playing pro and never followed the circuit, but he has given as much to AAC and its golfing contingent as any professional in the history of the club. His contributions to the game of golf itself have been outstanding. He was president of the PGA for the years of 1958, 1959, and 1960, and was as responsible as any man for bringing the 15th biennial Ryder Cup matches to Eastlake in 1963. Over many years, Harold has dedicated himself to the club, its problems, and its progress. The architects of the club's future often sought his views and plans for major moves toward the improvement of AAC. One of the sparkling pieces of evidence to his administration is the fact that most of the young assistants in his golf shop have gone on to carve distinguished careers of their own. Many times... Club members take for granted the presentable condition of their golf courses and the smooth operation which involves caddies, carts, golf bags, the locker room, and even the play itself. Almost as many times, they fail to recognize this as the untiring effort of the man behind the scenes and that on this team, the club pro plays an impressive role.